Would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of John, John chapter 1? We're going to be studying the book of John today, and so if you have an open Bible and you want to follow along, which I always encourage people to do that, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, and then we're going to be leafing back and forth between the first six verse, uh, seven chapters of John. We're going to go to John 3, then John 4, then John 6, then John 1. So just be limber today and be ready and... Uh, and uh, we're going to really look at some amazing things in, in this passage. <clears throat> we are in what's called the Advent season by some people. That is a season that focuses on the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in Bethlehem at the cross, at the, at the, born in a manger and such. And what I would like us to do uh, throughout the month of December as we're preparing um, for Christmas morning, as it were, and worshiping that day is what I would like us to do this month is I want to sort of, I guess we could call it, I hope this doesn't intimidate you, we're going to look at a theology of the incarnation. We're going we're gonna to look at what the, the, this actually is when Jesus came, what this actually means that Jesus became a, a man, what, what is behind all of this. And my goal for you is, and for myself is, is that as we think about in this busy holiday season, as we think that every time you might see a manger scene or any time you might hear a song or see an image of Jesus being born, that all of a sudden for you, all kinds of, of truth and, and reality and doctrine and theology all come and, and, and fill you. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping to do. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm hoping through this month to fill us with a theology of this first coming of Jesus and to help us to understand uh, what is behind all of this, what this all means, how rich and deep this is. And I want to do that this morning by looking at, you know, uh, what could be called the plan. If, if I were to put a title, this could be something like called the plan. I want to look, I want to go back in time, as it were, before Jesus was born, and look at the, what, was be, what was the plan, why there was this plan that God would become a man, why there was this plan that the very Son of God would be born in the manger, why, why, why would this be? And so let's look at that plan. So what we're going to do is we're going to look in the book of John, and we're going to be moving around a little bit. Now, when we do this, that means what we're doing for our Bible study this morning is we're not taking a passage and, and, and then opening it up like I've been doing through Matthew. We're going to take sort of some themes. So when you do that, what you have to do, you have to be careful if you're ever doing this sort of theme study in the Bible, is when you get a verse... We're just going to look at that verse. We're not going to look at it in context necessarily. So just take your time, really focus, and get everything you can out of that verse. That's what we're going to try to do. So I'm going to give you several, uh, three, four points right at the beginning. Then we're going to kind of open this up. Point number one is this. And Matt actually, Matt and I did not talk. We didn't talk at all. Matt made the first point this, uh, when we were worshiping today. And that was this, that Jesus came to earth. Jesus came to earth, and that, that this idea that this person, who is the second person of the Trinity, God, came to earth, is very much a, this idea that he, Jesus himself said, I came down here. Like, I didn't 
come to earth from heaven, okay? I was, you didn't come to earth from heaven. You were conceived in your mother's womb, and then you came to earth, okay, through, through the, the birth. But you, Jesus said, I came from heaven. I existed in heaven before I came here, and I came here. And that's clearly what John teaches. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, so here's his preexistence, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then drop down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was the word in the beginning. He became flesh and he came and he lived among us. And Jesus is very conscious of this and talks about this often. Look at chapter 3, for instance, and verse 13, which Matt did quote, actually. I kept saying, slow down, Matt, slow down, Matt, let me preach. Uh, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven... That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now notice here, he, is sent, he came down from heaven. And that's his consciousness. I came down, I, I, I was somewhere before I came to this earth. Look at chapter 6 and verse 33. Chapter 6 and verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven. I do not do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we're going to actually return to some of these same verses several times here, and that's one of them. Look at verse 50 and 51. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread which I shall give him is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Look at verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And so Jesus was the one person who come down, he can walk through life, and he said, I came down from heaven. Point number one, Jesus came from heaven to earth. Point number two, the Father sent him. This is a, a, a very important theme in the book of John, that the Father sent the Son. Look at chapter 3 again in verse 17. Told you we'd be flipping around a lot here. Chapter 3 in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Look at God sent his son into the world. Look at chapter 5 and verse 24. I know these are simple points, but I want us to get these down, and I want us to realize that this is repeated time and time again in the scriptures. Look at chapter 5 and verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. I have been sent. Look at verse 30 of the same chapter. Can I, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Look at verse 36. For I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very, the, the very works that I do, bear witness of me 
that the Father has sent me. The works that I do, and here the one that he's referring to here, was that he healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. He healed him. The guy's walking around. He says, see these works? I'm doing these works that they bear witness that the Father has sent me. So Jesus came from, earth to, from heaven to earth. Jesus came because his Father sent him. Now let's add to that. Jesus came and his Father sent him. We got that down. He sent him, the Father sent him to fulfill a mission. The Father sent him on the basis of a plan, a plan. Look at chapter 5 again in verse 30. We just read it, but let's read it again and see this new nuance. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus has come, sent by the Father, to do something that the Father wants him to do, to do the will of the Father. Verse 36, and I, 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 again, we've, we've just read it, but again, look at it. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. Now notice, that's part of the plan. The Father has given Jesus works that Jesus is to finish on earth. The very works that I do... And these works that Jesus is doing, which is the plan, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The Father says, I'm sending you, do these works. Here's the plan, here's what you're to do. Look at chapter 6 and verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, there's our first point, Jesus came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has been sent with a plan from the Father, the will of the Father, what the Father wants. Now he opens that up a little bit in verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me. This is the plan, you could say, in that way. That all that he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but shall raise it up on the last day. Now look at the plan here. The Father has given people to Jesus, okay? He's given people to Jesus, and the plan is, is that Jesus is not going to lose one of these people. And the plan is that on the last day, the final day, resurrection day, renewal day, new heavens and new earth day, every single one of those people that Jesus has been given by the Father is going to be saved, redeemed, justified, forgiven, and, and, given, and raised up and glorified on that day. That's the plan. So here's the plan, and this is what Jesus has been sent to accomplish. Look at verse 40. Another nuance is added. And this is the will of him who sent me. So there's the will. There's the plan. There's the being sent. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I am sending you, and my will is that everyone who sees you and believes in you will then be equipped, enabled, redeemed, saved, and, by, and, and will have everlasting life. I'm sending you that they will have everlasting life and that each one of these things will be saved. Now let's step back and think about this for a minute. Because there's some amazing aspects about this plan. In fact, this plan tells us a ton about the Father. Think about it. The Father came up with this plan. And this plan is glorious. Again, look at chapter 3 and verse 17. 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Doesn't that tell you a ton about the father? Who comes up with a plan like that? What a wonderful plan. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to sacrifice my son. I'm going to give my son. And through my son, through his death, through his resurrection, through his life, through all that he does, I'm going to save people. I'm not going to condemn the world. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to save people. And anybody who turns to my son is going to have everlasting life. I want, to, I want them to have everlasting life. I want them to be saved. I want, and I'm going to form a plan for this salvation to be worked out. That's pretty amazing stuff, especially when you think about how this world treated God, how this world treats God. Remember, God created the world, and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and the garden is beautiful, and everything that they have is there in the garden for them to eat. They can eat. They can have everything. It's a beautiful It's a paradise. They're there with God, and every evening, God meets with them. They talk about what they've done, and God blesses them, and they have this beautiful fellowship with God, and then one day... A snake comes to Eve and he starts talking. And he says to Eve, hey, Eve, did God say you can't eat any of these trees? And she said, no, 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 Satan, that's not what God said. God said we could eat any one of these trees except we can't eat that tree. That tree we're not allowed to eat because the day that we eat that tree, God says we'll die. And Satan says, that's a lie. That's a lie. God is lying to you. Now, at that point, she should have taken a stick and beaten the heck out of him. But she didn't. That's a lie. What she should have done is gone and got Adam, and Adam should have grabbed him, and that would be it, and whack his head against a rock, and that would be it. But no, that didn't happen. That's a lie. She entertained that. Hmm. In fact, Satan said, God is holding out on you. God is not a nice God. He's not nice. God knows that if you eat of that tree, you will be filled with the knowledge of good and evil. And you will be equal with God. You will be God's peer. You will be the same as God. You will know everything that God knows. And at that moment, you won't need God. You won't need to follow God. You won't need to have anything to do with God. God can just be out of the picture. Then you will be God's if you eat this. And she ate it. And she gave it to her husband, and he ate it. They absolutely rebelled against God. And then, of course, that began this awful history of the world, the awful history of a sinful world, a world brought under sin and brought under death and the reign of sin and the reign of death and, 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 and unholy lives and, and, and far away from God and, and, and our rebellion against God. And then God sends his son into the world. God sends his son into this world. And look with me to John chapter 7. And look at how John chapter 7 and verse 1 begins. It says this, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. And then in the next few verses, Jesus' brothers, his biological brothers, the children of Mary as well. Now, they were, their dad was Joseph, not God. But his biological brothers don't believe in him, and they want him to go down to Judea where he will be killed. They say, go down to Judea, show yourself, reveal yourself, start talking about the fact that you're the Christ down there. Let's see you. If, if you got this message, then go do it. Because they hated him. They did not believe in him. Look at verse 5. Even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Why? Because you're people of the world. 
This is your world. This is you. This is who you are, but I'm not. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you because you're them. You are the world. But it hates me. The world hates me. I'm hated by this world because I testify of it that its works are evil. This world hates me and this world will eventually kill him because we hate him. Now let me ask you this. How normally do you treat your enemies? What's our normal instinctive thing when we have enemies? What do we normally do when we have people who hate us? People who are enemies. People who resist anything that we want. People who are mean. People who are envious. People who cut us down. People who gossip about us. People who will do anything to hurt us. How do we treat those people? Well, we try, we try to get them out of our lives. Which I'm never talking to her again. I'm never talking to him again. I don't like that person. I don't want to be around them. We'll, we'll try to get them out of our lives. What would God do if he has a whole world of people? What, what would we think that God's natural thing would do if God were like us? What would he do? Destroy the planet. Just destroy it. Do you know how easy it would be for God to destroy this planet? Just think about it. That's all he would have to do. Just think about it. Gone. Done. I'm done with him. Gone. Pow. We're done. We're all done. We're just vapor. It's as if we never existed. But that's not what God did. It's not what God did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sends, God comes up with a plan in which he's going to send his beloved son into this mean, hostile, rebellious world. He's going to send his son. The plan is, I'm going to send you. You're going to leave heaven, you're going to come to earth. The plan is that you, my beloved son, is going to come to the earth. And he is a beloved son. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 18. It's an amazing verse, by the way. John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. Notice how Jesus is described here. Who is in the bosom of the father. What does that mean? It's, it's held close and tight. When you see somebody that you love and you, you hold them close, you just hug them. You just give them a, a big hug. You're just so happy to see them. You hug them. This word is actually used at the end of the book of John where Jesus is laying there at the final meal. And it says that the disciple that he loved was in his bosom. And that's when John was, and that's John, and John was able to speak to Jesus right like this. That there was this closeness. And this is what this is saying, that God the Father loved his son. Let's think about that for a few minutes. What does it mean that God loves his son? That God the Father, God the Father loves God the Son. What does that mean? He absolutely, God the Father, absolutely delights in his son. Do you know why? Because his son is God. His son is perfect. His son is infinite. His son is pure. Think of, think of a being who is infinitely holy infinitely good, infinitely perfect, infinitely loving, infinite. And that's why the Bible speaks of the beauty of holiness, infinitely delightful. The father absolutely delights in the son because the son himself is God. 
He absolutely, there's an absolute closeness and connection between the two. That's why the, Jesus said when he was on earth, they said, show us the Father. He says, when you see me, you see the Father. You see, I and the Father are one. There's this unique tightness and closeness between Father and Son as, as two uncreated beings, as it were. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is both with God and is God all at the same time. And there's this closeness, this mutual closeness and love and oneness for one another. They even do things together. John 1.1 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were created through Him. And nothing was made that was not made. Father and Son create together. The Father creates through the Son. That's this closeness. They do all things together. They do all things in harmony. They do all things in, in delight and in love for one another. And it's such a mutual thing. Jesus comes to glorify the Father. It is my food, my drink, my everything to glorify my Father. I love my Father. I've come not to do my will. I've come to do his will. I want to glorify him. And Jesus goes to the cross to glorify his Father. And he, and, 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 and he dies and he's resurrected. from. And what does the Bible say God does? God the Father glorifies the Son. He glorifies the Son for all that the Son has done. The Father gives the Son the kingdom. The Father makes him heir of all things. The Father enthrones him as king of all kings, lord of all lords, and gives him the kingdom. And the kingdom spreads and, de and develops in the kingdom. And eventually God's going to make all of his enemies under his footstool. And God is going to eliminate all sin and eliminate all things. And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth with all of these saved people that the Father has given him. And God gives him a kingdom, gives his son a kingdom because he delights in his son. He wants to glorify his son. It's that the John says that the, the Father even appointed the son for judgment, that all would honor the son just as they honor the father and what does the son do when he has this kingdom first corinthians 15 says he gives it back to the father there's this mutual give and take and this relationship that they have is a long-term relationship is that an understatement this relationship is a long-term relationship it's a relationship that has been going on forever and ever and ever. You, th you see married couples have been married 60, 70 years, 75 years, and those that have a deepening love for one another, and you think, wow, look at all those years. Look at all the years they have together. In two years from now, I will have been graduated from high school 50 years. It just, like, freaks me out even when I say it. I actually still meet with, have dinner with, and, and do things with a couple guys that I went to high school with and their, and their wives. We went to high school together. That relationship is a 50-year-old relationship. And it's, they're special to me. They're special relationships. This relationship, father and son, is billions and billions and billions and billions of years old. Before anything was created, before anything existed, in the beginning was the word. Past sense. In the beginning. So you go all the way to the beginning before anything was ever created, and there's the word, the son. And the word was with God, and the word was God. There you have this relationship, father and son, well before anything was ever created. Billions and billions and billions of years before anything was ever created. And so this is the son that the father gives. Can the father give anything more valuable than his son? 
If God were to give all of creation, all of the planets, all the stars, all of the universe, all the galaxies, all the oceans, all the, all the people, all the nations, everything, now that would be nothing compared to God giving his son. He gives his son for the salvation of the world. He sends his son for the salvation of the world. He gives his son a, a plan. In the, the, in the plan, the son is going to come to save the world. So let me say this. I speak reverently here, but I, I still believe this is very true. Nothing could hurt so much as to watch his son die on the cross. Nothing. That's why Romans 8 tells us he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says this. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was ordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. We were saved by the precious blood of Christ in a plan that was ordained before the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it's actually, this verse is actually speaking about the Antichrist, the beast, as it were. But listen to what this verse says. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, that's the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, look at this next phrase, slain before the foundation of the world. Let that sink in for a second. Then you should start quickly asking yourself, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Before the world was created, God's son was already determined that he would die on the cross. Wait a minute. Why? Now think about it. Go, go way back in time. Nothing, nothing exists but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God says, let's create a world, let's get started, and here's the plan, you will die on the cross on that world. Why? Why do that? Why would God even think about doing that? Why would God, why would God create a perfect world then allow Satan to come into that perfect world and allow him to directly lead and guide Adam and Eve to sin and fall, bring the world under sin, bring the world under death, bring the world under a curse, and then send his son to die upon that were in that world and to die on a cross hanging there with nails through his hands and nails through his feet with the sin of the world being laid upon him. Why would God even do that? Why would God even think about doing that? Why would God even put a plan like that in place? Well, let's attempt and answer that in the rest of this sermon. Right now, the World Cup is being played in soccer, and it's being played in a nation called Qatar. Qatar. Qatar is a very small little peninsula. Think of Florida. Florida is like a little peninsula. Qatar is a little peninsula. In fact, Qatar is such a little peninsula that uh, I, I checked it out. I checked out the square miles. The square miles of Florida is 65,000 square miles, okay? The square miles of Qatar is 4,000. Qatar is this really little jut of land. 
up until 1939, Qatar was just sand, dust, and some camels, and a, a, a couple, because it's right out in the Persian Gulf, uh, a, a port where ships would come in and ships would leave, and they would collect pearls out of, the, out of there, and they would train camels. That's all Qatar was known for. That's all they ever did, and try to survive on the dust. And then in 1939, the British, it was a British colony at that point, discovered oil. Now, Qatar, little Qatar, it's, it's, it's smaller than Connecticut, a little bit bigger than Delaware, is the fifth richest nation in the world. The fifth richest nation in the world. Why? Because underneath the sand and all those camels and those, that, 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 that really desolate area was a vast reservoir of oil and natural gas. Right now, the largest reserve of usable natural gas is under Qatar, little Qatar. But it was undiscovered for all of those years, and all of those people didn't even know. They were just raising their camels, just trying to get by, uh, raising their camels out there in the middle of the desert. They didn't realize they were the richest people in the world, and that almost per capita, they were, they were sitting in there. Now, I want you to take that as an illustration. I want you to sit back. I want you to think about something. There is a hidden, infinite, vast, infinite. When I mean infinite, I mean think of an ocean that never ends. The shores go, but they never end. This vast, vast ocean. North, south, east, west never ends. Deep, 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 deep never ends. There's this vast ocean in God of this really super powerful, super amazing, very hard to grasp and understand thing called grace. It's, it's love. It's a super, super potent love, super powerful love. It's like nothing else. In fact, I'm going to try to describe it, and you're going to have a hard time grasping it because it's just such an amazing thing, this grace. It is love for enemies. It is genuine concern, heartfelt concern for the good of enemies, of people who hate you. That's what grace is. It's, it's, It's love for people who are opposed to you, who don't like you, who don't want to be around you, but, but you love them. It's love for those who by justice, by law, through justice, you should execute. You should execute them. You shouldn't love them. You should execute. If justice alone had its way, you should execute them. That's why I'm saying that when God had a world right now, if God were to destroy the whole world, that would be just. That would be right because we are all enemies against God by nature and that would be just and right. But love doesn't, but grace doesn't allow you to do that. Grace, grace, grace loves instead. Grace is love for those who don't even want your love. Grace is loving people who don't want your love and who are so screwed up that they have to have new hearts and be changed and be born again all over again in order that they can actually even accept and appreciate your love. Other than that, they are so twisted and so broken and so vile in their hatred toward you, they don't even want your love. I don't want to talk about God. I don't want God in my life. I don't need God. I don't need God. I'm going to do it myself. and And grace loves those people. Grace chooses to love people who would never choose to love you. Grace chooses to love people who despise you. Grace chooses people who love you even though they think you're so holy and they they don't like, that's what what was, was lying, as it were, almost hidden under God. Grace is a love that is willing to go to the most dramatic, unthinkable ways to secure the love and good of its enemies. And now think about this. This love is, 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 is laying 
hidden, like the oil and gas in Qatar. This love is laying hidden in the person of God. Angels don't know, they don't understand it. They don't know anything about it. They know that God is great. They know that God is mighty. They know that God is holy, but they don't know about this, this, this grace, this love. Satan and the demons know nothing about it. They rebelled against God. God did not, he did not exercise grace to them. God didn't, God sent them, cast them into hell. They will be there forever. God, they are forever, ever banished. Justice alone was what Satan and the demons experienced. Adam and Eve, they were in the garden. And they realized this God is really good. Then they rebelled against him and then he kicked them out of the garden. They're not allowed in. Angels are guarding the tree of life. And they now have to work hard. They have pain giving birth. They have to all of this suffer, and they die. So, so, so grace wasn't real clear to them. He didn't destroy them. The, the Bible says that God loves his creation. The Bible says that God loves, he feeds every single bird. Why does God feed every single bird in creation? It's because God loves the birds. God's loving. He feeds them. But birds are cute. God, God like, God's good. God's good. How do you understand? How do you tap the mind? How do you drill in and, and, and see the gushing flow of grace? You can only see that in a desperately fallen world. See, grace only shows itself in the midst of people who don't deserve God's love at all. Grace only shows itself in the midst of sin and rebellion and hatred and enmity toward God. Then grace comes gushing out. Grace reveals itself. And God says, I'm going to make a plan. And the plan is I'm going to send my son. And my son is going to die as a sacrifice for these people that hate me. And then I'm going to have to send my spirit and renew their hearts and change their hearts so that they'll actually believe my son and embrace my son and such. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm not going to condemn the world. I'm going to save the world, and I'm going to restore it. And that's what the Bible teaches. Romans 11:32 says this, For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways passing out. His ways past finding out. I'm sorry. His ways past finding out. This infinite God, who would come up with a plan like this? That they would all be, 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 uh, be in need of grace and grace alone. But that's what he did. Why? Why did God do this? To show forth the glory of his grace. To reveal something about him so that the angels see, the demons see. All of creation knows that God is a God of grace and mercy. And only in the context of this fallen world could this be known. That's why God made this plan. And that's why in Ephesians 1 it says this, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Look at the next phrase. To the, oh, first of all, before that, look at this. According to the good pleasure of his will. There's the plan. To the praise of the glory of his grace. The plan was to the praise of the glory of this vast reservoir of grace which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, I'm going to change that translation and make it more accurate and more literal. By which he graced us in the beloved. See, dear friends, here's a beautiful thing. 
Remember when God said, here's the plan. I'm going to send my son. Son, I'm going to give you a people. And these people I want you to go and redeem. I want you to die for. I want you to save. I want you to bring them to faith in you. I want you to keep them and hold them so that every single one of them comes to the new heavens and new earth and we dwell together and live together together. I want you to do that. Here's the beautiful thing, dear one. If you're here as a Christian today, you were included in that number. You were graced. You were graced. Before time began, God chose you. God says, you'll be one of them. You can sit here and say that. Do you realize how amazing that is? That you can sit here and say, before time began, God made this amazing plan. And somehow, by his grace, Todd Jossum was included by name in that plan. I was given to Jesus. And you can add your name to that. I was given to Jesus. I am one of the people who have been privileged to be one of the examples of the depth of the infinite riches of the unmerited, unconditional grace of God for his enemies. God included me. God gave me to Jesus. Jesus, my good shepherd, died for me. Jesus, my good shepherd, hung for every one of my sins. Jesus, my good shepherd, secured the forgiveness of all of my sins. Jesus, the good shepherd, rose again from the dead, and I am one with him. He is coming in. I will live with him. I will stand on that final day. I will be redeemed. I will have a new body. I will live in a new heavens and new earth because God has graced me, in, and my whole being will be to be a testimony, an example, a treasure of God's infinite grace. What should our response be to this? That's easy, isn't it? Praise, worship, adoration, thanksgiving. Oh, God. What should our response be to this? Love. Oh, God, I love you. Oh, God, thank you for loving me. Oh, God, I'm so overwhelmed. I love you and I thank you. Sent your son. That should be the response. That should be the primary response. A life of, oh, God, I love you. A life of, oh, God, by your grace, I am who I am. Oh, God, thank you for being so kind to me. Oh, God, thank you for loving me so unconditionally. Oh, God, thank you for including me. Oh, God, thank you that you are such a rich. Thank you. It's to live a life of joy. We stand in grace. I wanted to put this up, but listen to Romans 5, 2. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You've been plunged in an infinity of grace. Splash around in it, swim in it, float in it, love it, feel it. You live all of your days in grace. You'll never be apart from grace because God has set his grace upon you. And he did this through sending his son. How should we respond to this? Let me give you one more. You should never worry again the rest of your life. Stop it. Stop worrying. Never worry again. You say, where'd you get that from, Todd? The Bible. Romans 8, 30 says this. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Here's grace. Here it comes. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
how shall he not with us also freely give us all things? Stop worrying. He's, he's treating you with grace. He's included you in this great plan. He saved you. He sent his son to die for you. He's preparing heaven for you. He's bringing you to be with him. He's your, and he gave you to his son, and his son is protecting you and guarding you. He's protecting you and guarding you. Stop worrying. Be anxious for nothing. This God's going to take care of me. He's for me. I didn't need to stop worrying. Talk yourself out of your anxieties and worries. Remind yourself of what God has done for you by his grace. Remind yourself that this flood of grace has plunged over me. Remind yourself that you are floating in the sea of his grace. Don't listen to your fears anymore. When your fears start whispering to you in the dark, when your fears start speaking to you, shut them up. Don't listen to them. I'm not going there. I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to listen to what he's done. I'm going to trust in this God who by his infinite reservoir of grace, this huge infinite ocean of grace, has treated me with such grace. Are you insecure? Stop it. Don't be insecure. Did you hear what Jesus said? The whole world hates me. Now, today, modern psychology, you know what they say about Jesus? He's pathologically, neuro it's a neurosis, he's paranoid. Do you know what Jesus said? The whole world hates me. So what? So what? God loves me. And you know what? That's not going to stop me from loving the world. You see, we all get all insecure. Oh, God, my insecurity. People don't like me. And you know what the Bible says? Stop that. Who cares? The world hated Jesus. The world hates me because I follow Jesus. So what? I don't care. I have a reservoir of love, God loving me by his grace. And guess what? I love you. And your hatred of me can't stop me from loving you because the grace of God has enabled me to love you as well. Do you dread the future? Don't dread the future. God's got it in his hands. And you stand in his grace. So, dear ones, as you go through December of this year, with all of its distractions, all of its noise, all of its buying, all of the Amazon trucks pulling in the driveway, whenever you see the baby in the manger, I want you to say, there's grace. There's grace. There's no reason for this to have happened but grace. Grace. And then I want you to say, there's my grace. There's my Savior who has come for me and who has taken on a body for me so that he can die. There's my grace. There's the plan being worked out. There's salvation. Oh, dear ones, I hope that you will enjoy the God's grace. And for those of you who are not saved, I just hope that you will come and say, I need this grace. I want this grace. And you can run right to a God of grace. And he will embrace you with this amazing, amazing grace. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We love you. We glorify you. We honor you. There aren't even enough words to say. But just thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace, for including us. Bless us now as we come to the table and fellowship with you as your family, welcomed here by grace, purchased here by the blood, 
remembering the blood and body. May you be praised and glorified for your grace and mercy. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.